Hello and welcome. You're listening to Writers Aloud, a podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. Hello and welcome to episode 445 of Writers Aloud. In this episode, Leslie Glaister speaks with Caroline Sanderson about the mystery of why some of her characters roar into life while others don't, pays tribute to Hilary Mantel as a friend and mentor of her work, and argues that the heart of her fiction doesn't only lie in darkness, but also in the triumph of the human spirit. Leslie Glaister is the author of 15 novels and one young adult novel. She's also written short stories, poetry and drama for stage and radio. Among many accolades for her work, she received both a Somerset Morn and a Betty Trask Award for her debut novel, Honour Thy Father, published in 1990. She's also won a Yorkshire Post Author of the Year Award in 1993 for Limestone and Clay and a Gerald Fiction Uncovered Award for Little Egypt in 2014. Of her writing, The Independent on Sunday once commented, Glaister has the uncomfortable knack of putting her finger on things we most fear, of exposing the darkness within. Leslie, that's certainly my experience of reading your work, that there's a heart of darkness and, and a vein of the macabre and the, and the sort of da- on damage. So when you look back on your considerable body of work, um, hugely varied as it is in, in style and form, what do you recognise as its hallmarks? Well, there is that, yes. But funnily enough, I, it's not what I ever aim at. I never start a book thinking, how dark can I make this? Or where can I take this that would be uncomfortable? Um, I usually start with some kind of sense, just a sense of humanity and relationships and the relationship between people and what's happening to them, as well as the relationship between people and how it shapes them. But I also have a kind of vein of, humour going through, a sort of dark humour or a, or perhaps better put as a sense of the absurd. So while there is darkness, I can't deny that, <laughs> um, it's not it's not what it, it's not the meaning of it for me. I think what strikes me about life and what I like to see in in any kind of art really, film and music and and painting and, and literature and poetry, is that sense of a that there is a dark shadow underneath everything, and there's a uh, there's a sense of fear, but that there's a sort of triumph of the human spirit that that despite that, despite mm. the fact that we're all going to die and awful things are happening, and particularly awful things are happening now in the world, we can still have fun, we can still laugh, and we can still make relationships, and we can still make plans. So it's a kind of interplay of the dark and the light. I know, I see that. There's a lightness of touch and it's always leavened by, as you say, sort of humour and some optimism, I think, as well. Yes. Well, as I say, I do think there is this sort of triumph (laughs) that we do it, we can do it. Mm. We We can go through all of this, all of the stuff we go through and we can laugh and we can hope. And we can cringe and squirm at things that are like horribly on that edge between laughter and tears and horror sometimes. 
I think that's a place. <laughs> seems to be a place, an uncomfortable place where I feel quite comfortable yes. being in my, not in real life, but in my imagination. That seems to be the heartland. Yes. Well, I know, um, thinking about how you you started writing, I think you've been writing since a child. Mm. I know you were a, a voracious reader. And you wrote in a piece for The Guardian that you, you gobbled books, hardly noticing or quickly forgetting the titles and the names of the mm, writers. Mm. Was there, there a straight line from that to you becoming a professional writer yourself? Um, well, I, it's very hard to unpick the beginnings of that because actually one of my earliest memories of reading... I mean, I, le- I can remember actually learning to read. I can actually remember seeing the black marks on a page becoming words. I learned to, to read before I went to school, and I can remember my mum was putting her finger along a line of words and reading them, and, they, and I was just listening to her and watching them, and it was almost as if they started moving, and then they started to mean something. And I think from that moment, I've just felt that's... I love words. It's amazing you can remember that. I wish I could remember yeah, that feeling. Yes, I can't. Yeah. I mean, I can't remember very well, but I can mm. just remember a sense. I, th- I think you know we all have different moments, don't we, where something happens, yeah. something significant happens, and that was one. And another one was when I was a little bit older and I read my first chapter book, which I was very proud of. In a proper book, not a picture book, a proper book with chapters, and it was called. Seven Days with Jan, and right at the beginning of the first, I think the first chapter, Jan, who's a little Dutch boy, is the son of a market trader, and it's Christmas Eve, and he's in the market, and there's a description of a pyramid of tangerines wrapped in rustly paper on a stall in the cold with the street light shining on them. That's how I'm remembering it. It might not be exactly like that. But I can remember at that moment thinking, I want to do this. I want to make that. I want to make people see things the way I've... And it wasn't just seeing them. It was feeling that moment. So wanting to write and reading were a one and the same for me. Intertwined. Yeah. yeah. And in fact, I love to read and I love to be lost in a book. So... I mean, I'm sure a lot of people who are both writers and readers will recognise that you sometimes it's sometimes hard to get lost in a book because you're so aware of the writing. So what I really love is when I find something where I stop thinking about the writing and I'm just into it. it and it's it's the one the wonder of that. One brain has thought something and made it into black marks on a page, and then another brain is looking at those black marks on a page and making a world of it. I mean. That that's, must be the most extraordinary technology ever, I think. <laughs> it's staggering, isn't it? I don't yeah. think we almost don't think about it enough. You, you're completely immersed in something and, 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 and it's real, even though it's just being conjured yes. by your yes. head. Yeah. I, I have, there are a few um, characters in some of my books who have kind of crossed the line between memories of things in books and memories of real people. And I have to actually remind myself that that person doesn't exist. Wanda in um, Easy Peasy. I, I feel as if I she is someone I know, and I, she isn't. She never was. But it is a funny... Because there's a sort of membrane, obviously, between 
all the memories that I can remember <laughs> from my life and then all the memories I've got from my books and then probably another memory in between memories from other people's books and but sometimes the things just it becomes a bit permeable I think mm. well, that's indicative of how well one almost should know one's characters as a writer you know, mm. just mm. as you say, you can barely remember yeah. who's real and who yeah. isn't. That's but it doesn't. It doesn't always work like that, and it's sometimes frustrating when the ones that I want to do that won't. And I don't know. I have no idea why that's the case, and I don't know why you can't force a character to become real. So what is the difference? What is it? I don't know. In fact, something I'm writing at the moment, I could not make the character I wanted to speak speak. I could not make him be alive. And then I realised he was dead. And then someone else stepped into his place who took that part of the book, took that part of the story over and just roared into life. I, I, I just find it a very mysterious process. It's kind of alchemy, isn't it? But you have to get yourself into that space, I suppose, where those things can happen or, yes. not, or not happen. Or not happen. Yeah, yeah. or not happen. Yeah. So I'd like to talk about your very first novel, Honour Thy Father, published in 1990. It's, it's a short novel, but it packs quite a punch, almost literally, because it's <laughs> domestic violence yeah. in it and, and murder and incest. And it centres around the lives of, of four sisters who, who live together into old age. It, it feels sort of in the something in nasty in the woodshed sort of tradition but as we were alluding to earlier there's a there's a tenderness in the way that these lives have unfolded but also just that the growing regret really for lives not lived which I feel is a is a recurring theme Mm. in, in your fiction as well so I wondered how that as a first novel how it took shape in your mind I mean, it's a long time ago now, obviously, that I wrote it. Yes. But I had written two novels before, neither of which got published. But when I started writing this one, it's kind of slightly based, very, very partially based on some of my family. (laughs) I I hesitate to say that, given what you've just said about it. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Only partly based, yes. And, And it's also based on a landscape where they used to live, which is in the Fens where it's incredibly um, flat and bleak and it's cut up by dikes, you know, sort of water canals and you can see for miles and yet you can't get there because it's all cut up. So there's a sense of openness and yet something about being trapped. And it has been sea, that land, but yet it's miles from the sea now. Um, so there's just a, there's a very a sense of strangeness about the landscape, and my mum's mum was called Millie, and she was a one of a family, and they were all called things like Millie and Dilly and Maisie and Tilly, and they all had very similar names, and there were lots of them, more than four, and then there was one very weird brother who got into trouble, and I think for stealing women's underwear off washing lines, and. One of the sisters killed herself, and some of the, I think there were at least one, if not two, sets of twins. You know, it was a, and and it was just a very a very interesting family, and so I just 
took the that idea of that landscape and this big family of eccentric people living miles from anywhere and the book spun itself really it's the only book I've ever written where I've hardly rewritten anything just kind of came out almost like a dream it definitely has that quality yeah. as you read it and then I went on an Arvon Foundation course and I was very frightened of going because although I'd been sending work out I'd never really shown anyone any of my writing and I'd never really talked about wanting to be a writer um, and I felt very shy about it and also really I was very unconfident partly because I didn't want I, th- I felt if somebody read it and didn't think it was good then that's my whole reason for being <laughs> smashed even though even though this was all all quite submerged um, nobody who knew me then would have known this Anyway, I, I did go on this Arvon Foundation course, and one of the tutors was Hilary Mantel, and one was Claire Boylan. And it was just wonderful for me, because I really made a big leap. It really changed my life, going on that course. When we were doing exercises and then reading out, which I was utterly terrified of doing, I realised that actually when I was reading, people were listening, and properly listening and something was happening and I remember Hilary and Claire looking at each other at one point when I was reading something and I wasn't sure, you know you never know quite know what anyone else is thinking but I just felt maybe I can you know maybe maybe it is working and then at the end of the week Hilary said took, sort of took me aside and said would you like to me to introduce you to my agent and of course, of course, having tried to get things published before and, and tried to get an agent and had no luck, I said yes, <laughs> please. Um, and then we, we actually we became, Hilary and I became friends after that. And she was just very, very helpful and supportive. So I, I have a particular fondness for Honour Thy Father because I feel it's where I learnt, I found my voice properly. Yeah, a wonderful story of Hilary Mantel's. Late, yes. the late great Hilary Mantel's your work. Yeah, no, she was um, she was a really good friend and a help. It's interesting because I, I, I imagine were you publishing Honor Thy Father today, it might be dubbed domestic noir or maybe mm. gothic horror. But from what you say about the novel, it doesn't sound as if you were conscious of what genre it was at all. And I feel like that unattachment to genre, if I can use that slightly cumbersome word has continued throughout mm. your career, the, the feeling of not wanting to be pinned down and this idea that when you try and strive to write a particular thing, it doesn't work. That's but... right, yeah, yes. I mean, I do it, I, I write because I love writing. I've none. I've, you know, I've got a certain number of people who will always buy my books and I get nice reviews and things, but I, I feel I've never taken off. And both my agent and my publishers have actually tried to put their finger on why that is and there have been a couple of times where I've actually been adva- been asked can you try and write crime hmm. because there are elements of crime in many of my books or could you make it more like a psychological thriller could you just step further in that direction um, and I have on a couple of occasions tried to do that but I don't know I, I don't want to write for the sake of writing and for the sake of getting published 
It sounds a bit precious. and But I, I want to write because I want to write what I want to write. And that does defy any specific sort of genre category. So, yes. And I've, I have been lucky enough to, to always get my books published. Not to huge acclaim, but to enough acclaim to keep me going. <laughs> but the reason I write is not for that. The reason I write is because I'm just driven to do that. And it feels wrong for a writer to smooth down their uniqueness just for Mm. the sake of shoehorning it into a genre. I mean, of course, publishing is a business and it is about about Mm. sales. It's Mm. about selling books. And um, so that's the rub, really. Somehow, as writers, we have Mm. to try and do both. Mm. I don't think there's anything wrong with it if you you want to do it. Mm. I mean, I know people who have decided to write, you know... This book. is my new direction. Yeah, yeah. Yes. and I'm going to write that kind of book, and and I can see that there's probably a certain amount of satisfaction in learning how to write a certain sort of book, and then then writing that book for an audience, for a particular audience. And I and I and I'm certainly not saying people shouldn't do that, or there's anything lesser about doing that. It's just not what I want to do. Mm. So I think it would be appropriate at this point to talk about your novel, Little Egypt, published almost 25 years after Honor Thy Father in 2014, so it's quite a jump. But there's, a, there's an interesting connection between these books in the, in the acknowledgements to Little Egypt. Uh, you write that you used the Society of Authors Somerset Mourn Award to visit Egypt, and the mm. result eventually was, was this novel. <laughs> yeah. So tell us about that. Yeah, well, yes, I was, as, as you mentioned, I was lucky enough to win the Somerset Maugham Award for Honour Thy Father. In fact, I can remember Hilary ringing me up and telling me, sort of secretly, before, before when I shouldn't have known. She was on the judges, so she probably, <laughs> she probably helped with that. I, at that point, I had young children, three young children, and simply wasn't in a position to go off with a knapsack on my back, as I imagine Somerset Maugham imagined his probably male writers doing when they'd won. (laughs) (laughs) If if indeed he knew anything about the award, I don't know. But I did take a trip to Egypt with a friend. And I've always been fascinated in the iconography and just the stuff, just all the ancient Egyptian stuff and the beauty of it and the, the names of the gods and the goddesses and the... The, the deep layers of history and mystery of ancient Egypt, and that sort of had always had sort of a Cleopatra kind of fantasy <laughs> thing going on. So going to Egypt on this trip really set me off and made me think, yes, I have an idea for a book. And there was a some there, something happened when I went into one of the tombs. Are just extraordinary where you go it looks like it's just desert dull dry bare rocky and through a tunnel into this space which is just full of these amazing paintings that are painted thousands of years ago that are bright and almost like the paint's still wet and there was just something happened to my brain <laughs> when I mean they lit up obviously so that you can see it but I remember just I was I was so sort of gobstruck that I ended up st- staying there sort of and then realised everyone else had gone and 
went out and and it, but it was almost as if when I was in there it was almost as if the they were moving they were so alive I think partly I was not very well I had a bit of a fever anyway I felt very spooked and dashed out but I knew then that there had to be some kind of scene something like that yeah. in my book but then years later I was sitting on a on a train that had stopped um, the way they do when I think it's points failure or something which which strikes me as funny in a way because it's like it's lost <laughs> the train has lost the point of this <laughs> can't remember where it's going doesn't care anymore that's so true <laughs> anyway but it was it happened to stop near and I don't even know where it, where in the country this was but it was near I could look across the across to what looked like it had been a really grand house at one time but there was railway line on one side and there was industrial estate and I somehow knew that this had something to do with my Egypt idea and I don't know if I'm if I am imagining this or if I imagined it at the time or if it's true but I felt as if I saw a face at one of the windows just a like a pale smudge and I just knew I mean and this I immediately knew that that there's an old woman in that house and she's the same person as the, in the Egypt story. And it was like a germination of ideas. And that was a long time after. And it wasn't until I had that, the two ideas together, that I was able to start writing Little Egypt. But even then it took me years and years and years. Novels are so long in the gestation sometimes, aren't they? And you... You, you can have one idea, but as you say, until the right mm. way of doing it comes to you or the right pairing idea, yes. which could be years, but then yes. suddenly you recognise yes. it as being the, yes, but what's, know, the missing link or whatever exactly. it is. It's, it's, but it's, that, that recognition is what I find an, very mysterious. Because really mysterious. why should me looking out the train window at an old house suddenly rekindle the Egypt? I mean, there's nothing, there's no obvious connection between them. But there's something about the writer's brain which just does yeah. that, doesn't it? Yeah. It pairs the most unlikely things. I, I so enjoyed reading Little Egypt and, and really? it's sort of got a kinship with Honour Thy Father it as has. well, hasn't and it? You've it, got another a set of twins, yeah. Isis and Osiris, yeah. and they're trapped in a house yes. which is falling down around their ears and looking very much, spending their days looking back on events a long time ago yes and I I was unaware of that actually until after I'd finished writing Little Egypt and I then I began to think my goodness that this is in in some ways it's a similar it's a similar story so it's a it's a more developed story mm. they're very different novels they're very well. different entirely yes. different but yes. there's just so, there is something about kinship. that and I and I don't know why I don't know why I think sometimes writers have a sort of a certain shape or a certain kind of um, almost like a watermark in paper in their imagination that will sometimes float through. Or <laughs> yeah. yeah. You've said that this novel also took a long time to mm. write because, again, you were trying to make it into something that you're, uh, at that time, long-time publisher, make it into something that you thought that they would like. Mm. Um and eventually you did part company with them because, you know, the mm. sales weren't what they wanted. Yes. And 
that must have huge, been hugely disappointing. Mm. And that's a very difficult part in any writer's career. But I think you also decided to see that as an opportunity mm. yes, in, I in your career I as well. It... A sort of freeing and yes. I think you started teaching at that point that's as right, well. That's right, yeah, yeah. I had always been teaching a little bit and doing bits of um, writing for radio sometimes to, to sort of boost my income. And actually the radio because I enjoyed doing it. But... I did, I did, it was a bit, it was a difficult moment for me when I was dropped from, it was Bloomsbury, because, not because they didn't like the book that I'd written, but because my sales hadn't been good enough. And it was very hurtful, and it was a difficult period for me. But I found that I didn't, didn't make me want to stop writing, didn't do anything except make me feel quite, I don't know, determined to carry on. And then it was just at the beginning of the time when lots of independent publishers were sort of springing up, partly in, in response to the the net book agreement, which made, meant the way that books were sold changed and the way that writers were paid changed. And it just, it just changed the ethos, really. And there was also a sort of change when other books had done this, but, I mean, it, it felt particularly around um, the whole Harry Potter phenomenon when publishers started to see that actually they could make huge amounts of money, bucket loads of money, um, on the next new thing. Mm. And it felt as if writers like myself and lots of sort of mid-list, as we were (laughs) called, writers, sort of fell out of favour because we were just jogging along, writing our books, having our modest sales and our modest receptions and maybe winning the odd prize but never kind of really breaking through and lots of people like myself included um, were kind of dropped gradually and at the same time lots of little independent publishers started springing up and it felt as if they were publishing they really believed in the books that we were writing um, and of course, it meant that there wasn't the financial reward because there weren't the big advances that you used to get from mainstream publishers, um, which meant people like myself had to find another way to make money. And for me, that was increasing my teaching, and that became a much bigger part of my life. But I don't think it was, I mean, I actually, in some ways, I felt it, as I say, as you said, I mean, I felt it quite freeing. It means I can I will just write what the hell I want. And. I don't know, sod them. <laughs> yeah. well, I, I mean, riskier for independent publishers in terms of, you, you know, it's, it's it's not guaranteed profit. But of course, in recent years, we've seen many small independents yeah. publish prize-winning novels. Exactly, and, yeah. you know, the, those, the, the sort of risk in inverted commas mm. that they've taken yes. has, has, has really paid off yeah. because they... They, they deal in, in quality yeah. above all. It's, it's so interesting. So since then, you've been published by some several small indie publishers, including Salt, a publisher of Little Egypt, and also Sandstone Press, who mm. um, brought out your most recently published novel, Blasted Things. So they've become a happy home for you. Yes, very much. And I, mm. I, I feel, yeah, I feel totally... I don't know if somehow it feels more like me to be publishing with a little independent <laughs> publisher. <laughs> yeah. So in a way, to return to my, my first question about the hallmarks of, of your work, 
I mean, whenever they're set, what what do you think will always be the preoccupations that thread through your work? I don't know because I I don't as I say I don't set out with any preconceived idea, and I if I want to write something different, I will <laughs> if that's what comes. So I Good. don't. <laughs> yes, I I think I feel as if the one I'm writing at the moment is funnier. I enjoy reading humour and I am a fairly humorous kind of person I think so I I feel as if there's something of that that I can feel something growing in me that wants to be funnier but I, I humour is a, di- a difficult thing to force so I would never force it but it's always going to be about the bright side of life and hope and things and then the flip side of disappointment and darkness and fear There's always going to be that because that is how it is. That was Leslie Glaister in conversation with Caroline Sanderson. You can find out more about Leslie on her website, leslieglaister.co.uk. And that concludes episode 445, which was recorded by Caroline Sanderson and produced by Anne Morgan. Coming up in episode 446... C.D. Rose speaks with Anne Morgan about blurring the lines between fact and fiction, being persuaded to write a book and finding ways to commemorate geniuses whose work is never discovered. We hope you'll join us. You've been listening to Writers Aloud, a podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. To subscribe to podcasts and to find out more about the work of the RLF, please visit our website at www.rlf.org.uk. Thanks for listening.